This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The Paralympic Games in Tokyo will take place between August 24th and September 5th, 2021. The Games have already been postponed by a year due to the pandemic. The Games will feature 22 sports contested by 164 countries and regions. Over 4,000 Paralympians will compete for roughly 1,500 medals. Canada plans to send a team of about 300 people, which includes 130 athletes and their support staff. It's a smaller team than in previous years, but there is a lot of uncertainty due to the pandemic. It's a unique time for the Paralympic movement and for high-performance sport in general to fill a larger need for both athletes and spectators. Today, we discuss the 2021 Tokyo Paralympic Games. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. I hope that everyone is staying safe and looking after yourself and keeping in touch with friends and family. I thought it might be a good opportunity today to check in on how things are going for Canadian Paralympians and para-athletes, especially with the Tokyo Games now a few months away. We haven't really had a chance to talk about it on the program. And so today I'm very pleased to welcome to the show, Laura Meisner, who is an associate producer who is an associate professor at the School of Kinesiology at Western University. She joins us today from London, Ontario. Laura, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you. Thanks for having me. So Laura, tell us a little bit about what sort of decision-making went into uh, the Canadian Paralympic team deciding to send some athletes to the Tokyo Games in August. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly there's a number of decisions that had to be made from Uh, the side of the International Federation in terms of creating safe spaces, a safe game, and that meant managing the numbers. And from the Canadian Paralympic side, the same decisions have to be made in terms of managing the number of athletes, coaches, uh, healthcare teams that go with the athletes. So managing the size of the teams is critical always, but certainly in order to ensure the health and safety of the athletes and all those that are attending the games, um, scaling back a bit is a critical part of it. But there are also a number of other factors that come into play, including the training environment, the previous training environment, qualification for the game. So there, there was a lot go behind this decision. It wasn't an easy one to, to scale back. No, I would imagine not. Uh, one of the ideas that's been floated around out there is that para-athletes or people with disabilities in general are more susceptible to COVID-19. How factual is that assertion? Well, I, the difficulty here is, of course, we broad brush uh, those mm-hmm. individuals with impairment or who identify with disabilities and make the assumption that um, all are susceptible or more susceptible. Certainly, there are sectors of the population, those who identify as having impairment or not, who may be more susceptible. And that may or may not include certain Paralympic athletes. Um, Some of those athletes certainly do have um, other underlying conditions that might make them more vulnerable to uh, 
this or to having complications associated with acquiring the virus. But uh, we can't, we certainly can't broad brush all Paralympic athletes under that same umbrella. We could say that about any, any part of the population. We could say that about Olympic athletes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the vaccine rollout? I know that's underway in many parts of the country. Have athletes with disabilities who intend to compete been prioritized in the rollout? Mm-hmm. Well, Canada's really made the decision uh, not to prioritize athletes per se. A number of countries mm-hmm. around the world did make that decision and offered their high-performance athletes uh, early vaccinations. In Canada, uh, we made the decision that it would be ruled out as per age categories or those in vulnerable populations. And so that's the pro- protocols being followed. The intention, of course, is that all athletes and all staff going to the Games will have had their vaccination prior to that point, but there's been no official statement that high-performance athletes will be prioritized. What do you think? Was that a sensible decision, or should they have, in fact, gone the route of prioritizing our athletes to make sure that they can compete safely? Um, Personally, I I don't agree with prioritizing the athletes. I certainly understand the importance that they have been vaccinated by the time they attend the Games. But, um, you know, there are a lot of individuals in our population that are much uh, greater risk and are also in, in very vulnerable environments. And I think we've made a sound decision to prioritize those vulnerable individuals and the environments within which the, the virus can spread. Um, so I think it was a really sound, very Canadian decision on our part. The risk, of course, is the fact that, you know, we have athletes who are training, getting ready for those games. And we really want them to be vaccinated before they even consider traveling or going to any of those events. So I certainly see that that's a difficult decision that's being made. But um, from, you know, the perspective of the Canadian, broader Canadian population, we're talking about a a small number of athletes and we needed to prioritize those um, individuals within healthcare settings and other vulnerable settings. And I think that's the, the right decision. I'm going to come back to the qualifiers and the training in a little bit, but um, I'm just curious about the numbers that I put out there off the top of the program, a team of about 300 people, 130 of whom are the athletes themselves, is that would leave about 150 people going in as support staff. How normal is this, or has there been a shrinkage in the number of support staff available to Canadian Paralympic athletes, and is that going to have an impact on athletes and their performance? Mm-hmm. Certainly, that is a small support staff going in. Um, typically, we see a much greater than a one-to-one ratio of athletes to support staff. Um, but Canada hasn't typically taken um, an extremely large entourage of support staff to any of its teams. It often brings um, a relatively lean support staff that is very skilled and highly qualified to support the athletes. And my suspicion here is that while it is a slightly scaled back support staff, um, the they will be choosing those individuals with a lot of experience with games, who are highly qualified, who are in a position to really support the athletes. Where we might see some of the gaps coming is when we speak about Paralympic athletes, some of those athletes that would go to these games have um, maybe higher support needs and require additional support For example, um, moving in and out of their uh, regular chair into a sport chair or for their own in-home environment. And so there may be some challenges associated with that. 
Uh, I think that's something that we just need to make sure we keep an eye on. Oftentimes, we also rely on the event staff at games. And so I know that the Canadian Paralympic Committee is working quite closely with the host organizing committee and the International Paralympic Committee to ensure that there is the appropriate support on the ground for athletes for all aspects of their health and safety from, you know, the basic comforts of a living environment that's uh, their home. It becomes their home for a month, really, and making sure that they're, it's clean and it's safe and that they're eating the appropriate things, the healthy meals, um, that they have the appropriate healthcare teams in place to support the training environment to the coaches, to, you know, all of that support staff is really critical. So while it seems like it's a, it's a scaled back support staff, my sense, though, is that it's likely to be a very highly skilled support staff that is going to these games. Uh, sticking with the theme of support, um, a number of athletes rely on friends and family to be in the stands cheering them on. This is true for Paralympians as much as it is true for everybody else. So how likely is it that uh, friends and family will be able to cheer on our athletes, or is that just not going to be possible with travel restrictions in place? Well, there will be no international spectators uh, during the game, so they will not, international spectators, and then that includes family and friends of those athletes participating, will not have access to tickets in order to attend the event. Um, travel restrictions in and of themselves is, is remains to be seen. Whether they will be allowed to be in country on the ground, um, we're not really aware of what the final circumstances are going to look like come um, July and August. Uh, but given that there won't be international spectators in the stands, it will be a different environment for those individuals mm. who are competing. We still don't know whether there will be really any spectators of any sort in the stands. So um, that that competition environment will be extremely different from anything that um, we've seen in the past. And that will be a challenge for athletes. Um, you know, these are, these athletes are, are highly trained and um, are, are good at their job. They know what they're doing when they get to an international event, but you know, the strain of the situation, the strain of the past you know, year and a half of the training environment really take the mental toll on those athletes. And so mm -hmm. not having their, their friends and their families and their support team there with them to cheer them on is going to be a challenge for them. So they're really going to have to focus on ensuring um, you know, they have the motivation and they have the, the mental stamina in order to keep going at these games because it, it certainly will present challenges for many athletes. You know, one of the uh, the things I came across in an article on the CBC recently had to do with uh, concerns around the cleaning of the athletes' village where these athletes will be living for the duration of the games. And the Canadian government wants to make sure and the CPC wants to make sure that athletes don't get sick. Apart from that, what other conversations, sort of high-level conversations, are taking place between the Canadian Paralympic Committee and the organizers of the Tokyo Games to ensure that our athletes make it there and back safe mm -hmm. and sound? Right. Well, you know, for, right from the outset of awarding uh, a Games to a host city, the uh, host organizing committee is in contact with all national uh, Olympic and Paralympic committees. So there are members of the National Paralympic Committee um, that are working quite closely with the local organizing committee on all aspects related to games. And that includes housing, transportation, uh, food, all of the things that go along associated with the games. And that also includes health and safety related matters. Certainly in this situation, it's 
it's quite different. Um, I think that uh, they have to think more broadly about the cleanliness and safety. Um, but at the same mm -hmm. time, I think you would hear from those on the ground and who've been to many games before that this isn't necessarily something new that they've had to think about. Uh, I know of event staff and, and members of, of delegates from teams who showed up at international sporting events and their first couple of days have been spent cleaning rooms, bedrooms, bedding, uh, toilet facilities to make them clean enough and up to a standard that we would expect for our high-performance athletes. So, you know, it's not an unknown environment to be having to do this kind of thing. Um, so I, I think our staff is probably very well informed and prepared for this. And certainly they are working quite closely with um, the local organizing committee on other related issues around those transportation being safe and making sure there they have the appropriate cleanliness, the dining hall areas, making sure that those are appropriately done. Um, of course, then all of the sporting and training venues as well. So this is not something where... Um, you know, the delegation shows up and doesn't know what the environment's going to look like. They're very well aware of what the protocols are going to be and how they are going to navigate within those protocols. Just before we go to break, I do have a small question for you, and it may be verging on speculation, but I do have to ask you, let's assume that during the Olympic Games, which will precede the Paralympics, there happens to be, despite all the precautions, a severe COVID-19 outbreak. We can't rule that possibility out. Mm -hmm. If that were to happen, what's going to happen to the Paralympic Games? Is it likely that uh, the Games will be cancelled or postponed altogether? That's a really... <laughs> If there is a likelihood that that could happen, um, we do have to remember that there is a time frame in between games, at least it's two-week time frame, and that's where we see the transition time between the Olympic and the Paralympic athletes in the village. Um, but many of those athletes and their coaches will already be in country as well. So that would be um, quite a difficult decision for the organizing committee, the International Paralympic Committee, to make. But you know, that's, I guess, one of the unfortunate things about going second is there certainly is that risk. My name is Joyita Gupta, and my guest today is Laura Meisner from the University of Western Ontario School of Kinesiology. Laura, before the break, we were talking about the possibility that if the Paralympics, seeing as they go second, uh, might get postponed or cancelled because of an outbreak of COVID-19. There was a couple of things I wanted to follow up with you on based on that preceding conversation. The mm -hmm. first is, of course, that many people have made the argument that the Paralympics will, in that case, become the sacrificial lamb. How do you mm -hmm. feel about that? Do you feel that they have an argument there? Or is it just sensible to put the games off altogether on the off chance that there is an outbreak in Tokyo? This is a really difficult situation. Um, we, I think we often think about uh, the order or the rationale and why the Paralympic Games comes second. And, you know, there's some logic behind it and the fact that, you know, then the venues are tested, the environment is tested, all the safety protocols are tested. It's fantastic. So we can run a really uh, safe, clean games for athletes. And that's an argument that's been made for a long time. The problem, of course, here is that um, it means that we we risk uh, losing out on the opportunity because if something does happen during the Olympic Games, then um, it's really easy to drop it. I think we would be in a very different situation. I think the decision-making processes would likely be different mm -hmm. if the Paralympic Games were held first and 
you're putting a scenario that if it if there were an outbreak during those games, would then the Olympic Games be, be cancelled? Um, I would say the decision-making processes would be a lot different. I think there is uh, more attention, uh, more at stake from a financial situation in terms of things like the marketing deals, the sponsorship deals, the broadcast rights associated with the games. Um, I think the decision would be more challenging and more complex for the organizers, the IOC as well, if it were reversed. So in some respects, I tend to agree that the Paralympic Games tends to be this uh, potential for a sacrificial lamb if we make it, uh, you know, second always, because, mm-hmm. it, you know, if something does go wrong during what many people call the main event, it's um, a lot easier to sort of uh, brush aside that what's often known as that secondary event. And yet there's a rationale there to say that, well, you know, it's better to save lives and keep people safe rather than to hold a sporting event. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I guess I lean more towards the entirety of the event, uh, making the decision. I'm, I guess I every day I wake up and I look at the news and I, I kind of expect there to be an announcement to be made that, uh, the entirety of the games is going to be canceled. I think we're in a really precarious situation where um, I think that decision has to be made for all of the games and not one over the other. These are, these are a one games model. They're run by the same organizing committee. They are in the same venues. They have all the same personnel associated with it. So we're talking about a one games environment, but um, so I, I tend towards the idea that I'm surprised we haven't got to the point of them saying, you know, this is not a good idea all around. Um, we're asking nations from around the world where the pandemic has been, um, you know, hugely problematic, even much greater than in Canada, where there are nations that don't have access to healthcare systems like we have in Canada. We have nations that don't have access to vaccines or haven't rolled them out in the way that we have. So we're really going to have uh, a narrow scope of nations at the games anyway. And we also have so many risks associated with the event as a whole that it does surprise me uh, continually that we seem to continue to push the idea that these games are going to be held. And yet I feel for the athletes who have worked so hard for this, and this is really the ultimate event for them. Um, but I just have to wonder whether it's the right thing to do in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. Mm. You know, uh, just setting aside the question around the athletes for just a moment and also bearing in in mind that for some athletes, this might be their last chance to compete. But let's just set that aside for uh, for a moment here. Uh, One of the arguments that's been made by opponents of the Olympics uh, is that these games are just far too expensive. And that argument has been uh, come to the forefront now that perhaps canceling it is just prohibitively expensive, given the amount of money that's gone into uh, preparing for and hosting the games, do you think that there there's something to be said for uh, thinking through the expense associated with these games? Because it almost feels like it's impossible to cancel them because so much money has gone into them. It's really interesting, that argument, uh, to be fair, because it, enti- it completely and entirely neglects a human rights perspective that is supposed to be at the forefront of what the International Olympic Committee, International Paralympic Committee argue they are about. Um, as soon as we bring those economics into it and weigh economics over human life, I think we are really risking the, the integrity of what these games are supposed to be about. Um, so, you know, I, 
I recognize the immense costs and the immense amount of money associated with hosting these games and the challenge that would come from a financial perspective. Um, but you're really asking to, to weigh the decision uh, about human rights against economics. And on the other, on the other side of this, I think the other piece that we have to recognize is the International Olympic Committee is an extremely wealthy organization. Mm-hmm. Um, they have uh, an immense amount of financial resources behind them for this very circumstance. The argument they have made time and time again of why they need to keep this huge carry for this huge amount of resources associated with it is for the very circumstance that if the games were to be canceled, if there were some thing or some reason that it couldn't go forward, the IOC would be in a position to support, to financially support a host city. And so I think the economic argument behind that just doesn't really hold any water. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the IPC, the International Paralympic Committee? How flushed with funds are they? Do the same arguments apply to the IPC as well? Uh, it, it doesn't. They don't have the same amount of resources, but it doesn't quite work that way. So the when we talk about the resources that are put forth into a game, um, things like the broadcast deals, um, the media and marketing sponsorship, those are all tied um, to a marketing and sponsorship agreement that is between the IOC and the IPC. So it is a joint, gre- a joint agreement where the IPC isn't necessarily held responsible with the same amount of financial resources associated with it. So it's, it is truly a one games piece where the IOC can take control of this. It doesn't mean that IPC wouldn't be on the hook for some of those resources because mm. certainly they would be. And they do have they do have the capital behind them. They've done a really good job in recent games um, to also make themselves uh, put themselves in a position to be financially accountable for these things. Um, but it wouldn't have necessarily have that same uh, impact. The IOC could take whole responsibility for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the few minutes that we have left, what sort of supports are available to Canadian Paralympic athletes compared to Olympic athletes? Do they get the same financial support, the same sponsorship deals, the same media coverage? Where are we at in Canada? Mm-hmm. Well, I I like to re- I would literally like to suggest that Canada has come a long way. Um, we have uh, a system where our Paralympic athletes are well supported at the national level in comparison to their um, the, the individuals that many of them train with, the Olympic athletes. Um, the carding system, the, the system of financial support for um, national level athletes is very good for both Olympic and Paralympic athletes. Um, where we see some of the significant differences and challenges come in things like sponsorship and marketing deals because those are often made distinctly with either the Canadian Olympic or the Canadian Paralympic Committee or with individual athletes. And we do know that there are very few uh, Paralympic athletes who have individual sponsorship and marketing deals. So they don't reap the same resources and support that many of our high-profile Olympic athletes uh, do. Um, And from a media attention, and that directly connects to where uh, that sponsorship and marketing perspective comes from, you know, we have come a long way. Um, Many years ago, many games ago, there were some real, real problems uh, throughout the world, but in Canada also uh, about representation of Paralympic athletes. One, very little coverage of them. If there was, it's often about that 
um, hero narrative or tra the tragedy narrative about, you know, all this, it's amazing that someone with, uh, you know, an amputee or someone with cerebral palsy could get up and do these things. And we've, we really started to change that tune from a media perspective. A, a lot has, a lot of attention has been paid to this. Um, and so athletes, Paralympic athletes are getting um, a decent amount of media attention and relatively good quality. Um, there's a long way to go. It's certainly not uh, equitable in relation to Olympic athletes or Olympic Games, um, but it has made advances, and I can only hope that we'll continue to do so. The Canadian Paralympic Committee um, continues to work very hard on their marketing strategies to ensure that athletes are well represented and that they're represented appropriately. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do in the media to ensure that we still tell good stories about Paralympic athletes related to their sport and their sporting successes and don't continue to hang our hats on these um, tragedy narratives or hero narratives only. These athletes are high-performance athletes and we need to celebrate their successes. Couldn't have said it better myself. Laura, thank you very much for being on the program today. Oh, you're very welcome. Laura Meisner is the director of and an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Western University. She joined us today from London, Ontario. If you missed any of my conversation with Laura, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe while you're there. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'd like to thank Laura Meisner for, me, for being my guest on the program today. Sam Robinson is in for Nasreen Abdul-Majid and is the technical producer for The Pulse for today. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.